Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to another chapter of Saints and Sinners Unplugged. Uh, my name is Ken Jones. I am the pastor of Glendale Baptist Church in Miami, Florida, and I am joined by Pastor David Menendez of Tamiami Baptist Church and also Pastor Jose Prada from Christ City Church and Pastor Aldo Leon, Reconcile Church. In our last time uh, together, we began talking about Reformation themes because as we are here in the month of October, we are celebrating the 499th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, uh, namely the nailing of the 95 Theses on the church door at Wittenberg by Martin Luther, which began a discussion on critical issues and doctrines uh, in the church. It wasn't the, the Reformation itself, but it's what really started uh, what became the separation from the Roman Catholic Church into a different branch of Christianity that we have come to call Protestantism, now, in talking about some of these things, what I wanted to do this morning is um, talk about some of the precursors, some of the things that led up to uh, the, the actions of Martin Luther. Now, the reasons for that is because there's a tendency, especially in an age where people don't always value history and really the evolving of a movement, there is a tendency to isolate Martin Luther as if he was the only one that was concerned about these things. And certainly the Lord used him in a unique and powerful way. But many of the concerns that were raised by Luther had been sparked centuries before. And in particular, there are two movements. For instance, Luther's action took place in the mid-16th century. But prior to that, in the 14th century, you have a, a person like John Wycliffe from England. And then in the 15th century, you have the actions of Jan Hus of Czechoslovakia, or what is today Prague. So let's talk about the steps. And granted, they weren't, it wasn't just, okay, I've, I've done my job, now you take it the next step. But there were some uh, long-abiding concerns already yeah. within the uh, church in response to the scholasticism that was dominant during the time, and so uh, both in terms of doctrine and ecclesiology, there were some significant challenges that go back to at least John Wycliffe. So let's talk about Wycliffe for a moment. He died in 1384. Uh, what can we say about John Wycliffe? Actually, we can even go back to the 12th century okay. with Peter Waldo, uh, which was a French lay preacher uh, who started you know, just pretty much wanting to uh, teach the scriptures uh, to regular lay people, and he got a movement started uh, that opposed the church when it came to their doctrines of purgatory, uh, prayers for the dead, refusing to take solemn oaths. Uh, they pretty much started the push of the church not being the, the full authority that interprets Scripture, but actually Scripture is the one that has the authority and that's, for the that's church. And that's a key element that continues to ride through the 13th, 14th, and, and eventually in the 15th century, that challenge to the teaching authority mm -hmm. of the church. Now, some people, some of our listeners might be familiar with the term magisterium. Uh, would you explain that for us? What was the magisterium? Because essentially what's taking place with these challenges is a challenge to the magisterium of uh, the Roman Catholic system or mm -hmm. church. Well, one of the things uh, I think um, 
that Luther has to address later on has to do with that the Pope was the sole interpreter of Scripture. Mm -hmm. The power resided with him um, and the church to interpret Scripture. And throughout the centuries that you have cited, the, uh, the 13th or 14th century, what we see is that the papacy has become very corrupt. Mm -hmm. So if even before it becomes an issue of theological and doctrinal relevance, it has to do with the degeneracy of, of an institution that claims to be the interpreter of Scripture as the Pope, and yet the Pope is in disarray. Mm -hmm. So we know that throughout that uh, 14th uh, 13, 14th century popes are in, 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 in rival factions, in wars, playing politics, owning yes. lands and, and states, and, and wanting to shape uh, uh, political geopolitics of the day. And, and by the way, we'll, we'll yeah. look at, at, especially with Huss, because he, right. he specifically challenged that, that the head of the church has no right mm -hmm. to take up the sword. Right. in the name of the state or yeah. the name of the church. So those things are very much intertwined, right? The fact yes. that... Yeah. But, but also yeah. specifically, as, as you alluded to with the Pope, mm -hmm. and the Pope really being the doctrinal standard for the church. Right. The idea of the magisterium, the teaching um, bishops of the church, is that mm -hmm. the Pope established the doctrine mm -hmm. and the layperson did not have a right, mm -hmm. A, to interpret the scriptures mm -hmm. for themselves, or determine or hold to any doctrine that was not passed on by the clergy. Mm. Problem was, the clergy themselves were not expounding the scriptures, and the people really didn't have mm. open access to the scriptures. Well, there, were, right. there were no scriptures mm -hmm. in reality when yeah. it comes to their, their native languages. You know? yes. uh, the only scripture that was available was a, a Latin a Vulgate that was written by Jerome uh, centuries you know, earlier. So... Um, I, I think, you know, even when, when David starts talking about how the papacy was just in corruption and, and, and all the things that happened, you spoke of uh, John Wycliffe, mm -hmm. and uh, that's really what drove him to eventually, mm -hmm. in, in 1378, when there was an, an, an inauguration of two popes, Wycliffe began publicly uh, saying that it, it is the Bible that is our authority, not any pope. You know. Well, and, and to go back to uh, Peter Waldo, that was one of the things. He was a lay minister, which means he was not an ordained clergy right. of the Catholic Church, but he took it upon himself to expound the scriptures yes. to mm -hmm. the masses. Yes. And, and he provided an important bridge uh, for them in terms of what the scriptures actually said, as opposed to what they were sometimes hearing in their churches. Uh, but back to your point about Wycliffe, uh, one of the common threads that we see... 13th, 14th, and 15th century is this movement towards putting, right, uh, translating the scriptures yeah. into the vernacular of the people. Right. So with Wycliffe, one of the things that he's famous for and that uh, most contemporary Christians that may be familiar with Wycliffe is his translation of the scriptures into, uh, into English. And then also um, with Huss, he would be known for the same thing. That's right participating in the translation of the scriptures into the vernacular of the people, therefore making the word of God available and accessible to the people where they could read it for themselves. So that's yes. almost as if removing that mediator of the church, of the papacy, and bringing the voice of God through the scriptures directly 
to the right. people. Yes. Right, because one of the things that was uh, that, that Luther fought against at the time of the 16th century Reformation is the idea that the church is authoritative over the word of God. Now, mm -hmm. they would say that uh, the authority for what we believe and practice mm -hmm. is established by the church, the magisterium, and the scriptures, which is when, when you have the Protestant uh, solas or the slogans of the Protestant Reformation, when they included that Latin phrase sola, hmm. sola scriptura, hmm. what they were distinguishing themselves from was the source of authority mm -hmm. that was common in the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church says the scriptures are authoritative, mm -hmm. but they gain their authority from the word of the magisterium and the traditions that have been held by the church. So the sola of sola scriptura, which is, we, we see the seeds of that in Huss and also with uh, Wycliffe and with Waldo, is the scriptures and the scriptures alone. That's the sola. Mm -hmm. The scriptures, and it's not to say that no other book, and we'll talk later about um, confessions and, and statements of faith that came out of the uh, Protestant Reformation, but the scriptures and scriptures alone are authoritative for what we believe and how we are to live. Mm. So the early voices of these guys and uh, in, in saying that, no, the church is wrong on this, and let's see what the scripture says, it really finds its fruition at the time of the uh, 16th century Reformation, mm -hmm. but seeds of discord had been planted already. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. It, there's many things as well that there's there's other doctrines that were placed in question by 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 some of these guys. Mm -hmm. uh, like for instance, um, one of one of the doctrines that was placed in question by Wycliffe was the doctrine of the Eucharist. You know, yes. in, in, in the Roman Catholic Church. I I'm glad to hear you use the term the the, the Eucharist. I'm surprised at how many of my, especially Baptists, but, but how many Protestants are afraid of that word, mm -hmm. Eucharist? What does the word Eucharist actually mean? Giving thanks? Yes, a feast of a thanksgiving. thanksgiving. Yeah. Right. Yes, so mm -hmm. it's not yeah. in and of itself the doctrine of transubstantiation. Right. And I, I'm, I'm just glad you used that mm -hmm. phrase because the issue was not the use of the term <coughs> Eucharist, but what was meant by it. Right. So right. Wycliffe, as you mentioned, challenged... Yeah, the, he challenged the fact that Roman Catholic thought was that uh, the bread and the wine actually became the actual body and blood of Christ. Through uh, the intercession through of the Through the priest. interception of the priest, yes. Consec what they call consecration. So, uh, and he challenged that. You know, uh, he also challenged uh, for the masses to be able to partake of the yes. of the Eucharist of both parts of the Eucharist. Yes. 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 And and um, of course the Roman Catholic doctrine on that is, as you said, that the elements change, and it's called transubstantiation. Yeah. That the substance of the Eucharist actually changes into the body and blood of Christ, which in effect makes the Eucharist a sacrifice of Christ rather than receiving. God's gift of the sacrifice of His Son. Sounds very similar to the way we see it today. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do believe that um, of, of all of the things, even if we just return to some of the, the arguments that were raised within the various strands of Reformation, early, early Protestantism, 
on what is communicated, what is the supper about, even, you know, whether it's a memorial or real presence. Even if we just return to that kind of a conversation, I think it would be much better than the light taking of the Lord's Supper. I mean, I, I just think it's, um, it's, it's, it's a critical, in fact, Calvin would make the point that everything that is verbally communicated in the gospel itself is physically and visibly set forth for us in the Lord's Supper. I think the two go together. So certainly, uh, Wycliffe was one, early on in the 14th century, challenged the Catholic teaching of transubstantiation. Mm -hmm. um, he, he, they kind of started pushing, pushing him uh, outside, pushing him away because of these different views that he was bringing. I mean, I have a quote here um, of his that says this, the church is the totality of those who are predestined to, be, to blessedness. It includes the church triumphant in heaven and the church militant or men on earth. There is one universal church, and outside of it there is no salvation. Its head is Christ. No pope is the head, for he cannot say that he is elect or even a member of the church. Mm. Yes, and, and Wycliffe is one of the ones, the early ones, to use the terms visible versus invisible church. That's right. So the universal church would be the invisible church, all of those who look by faith to the personal work of Christ at all times, at any point in human history, whereas the visible church is the institution as we see it. It is the invisible church that is pure yeah. and the visible church that is always mixed. Yes. Okay. Well, let's talk for a few minutes about Jan Hus, who comes to us later, um, almost 100 years after Wycliffe. Hus dies um, 1415. He was burned at the stake. So let's talk a little bit about him. What do we know about Jan Hus, also known as John? Well, it's also, uh, he, was, um, he had imbibed uh, the teachings of Wycliffe as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had become a pastor in Prague and um, was also sort of like a victim of politics there between the Germans and, uh, and the Czechs. And uh, he's caught in this uh, crossfire of, of politics for one who also wants to teach the supremacy of Scripture and who also uh, wants to teach that Christ is the head of the church. Right. Um, and eventually, thinking that he's going to be able to make his case, uh, together with a colleague of his by the name of Jerome, <laughs> they make their way to uh, the Council of Constance, who uh, began in 1404, and they um, set forth their views, but they are immediately imprisoned, and um, John Huss is put in a in a dungeon in a basement for about eight, nine months, from which then he's taken out to be burned at the stake as a heretic. Yeah. Yeah, and with Huss, and especially that issue of church and state, and I, I do think it's, it's important that we recognize historically, especially in Europe, that, boy, there are some complicated issues there in yeah. terms of the relationship of church and state. I mean, it goes back centuries even before these guys. <coughs> So for a person like um, Jan Hus or even Wycliffe to make this distinction in the separation, because one of the things that Hus did is he made the declaration that no sword is to be taken up in the name of the church. Mm. And of course, when you consider the, the crusades and things of that nature, um, mm. 
there was, I mean, that's what they've been doing. <laughs> yes. That's what the popes have been doing. Yes. And fighting for their supremacy and power in the region. And he also yeah. denounced the concept of mm. a state church, mm. that the church is not under the authority of the state as a religious institution. Mm. So it does become complicated, even later, uh, post-Reformation, disentangling uh, the state from the church. Luther encountered this even in Geneva mm -hmm. because the relationship had been so intertwined over the years that there was the assumption that church and state are one and the state was used uh, to bring discipline on doctrinal matters uh, in, in the life of the church. But these guys, particularly Wycliffe and then more in a, in a more pronounced way, mm -hmm. Huss, uh, made a clear distinction and separation mm. between church and state, not in the way that we have our conversations sure, today sure. in America, yeah. but recognizing that, th that these are two different entities. Mm. Yes. Yeah, at a very basic level, just Huss gets sick and tired of seeing popes uh, become, be so corrupt. I think it was, I don't remember what the name of the pope was, but the pope, there was, there was a, uh, um, a leader, one of these religious leaders that had helped him and had kind of helped him survive initially, but then through the sale of an indulgence, he comes to be Pope. Um, Was that Winston Kloss, the one that they have the song on? I think so, yeah. one of those princes. Yeah, right? yeah. and basically uh, because of uh, um, Bohemia, it was worth a mess, of, you know, in a yeah. way. And, uh, and that's why then uh, he sees all that. He gets sick and tired, like all the rest of the reformers, seeing the, the moral corruption of the Pope uh, as the head of, you know, of a state and also claiming to be the head of the church. Um, and they, you know, through the study of Scripture and um, on a very basic level, react and reject yeah. uh, these, uh, these ways. I think something that's important to, to bring out uh, in this conversation is that what these guys were saying about the Word of God and what the church is or what it isn't and, and um, who, who the head of the church is, no one was saying it. Um, and so yeah. the, the argument against them was you're going against what everyone else says and what's been taught for a while. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's important because I think us being confessional, like, hey, we look back to the generations <laughs> before us to, to, to understand, you know, how the gospel has unfolded from generation to generation. But at the same time, in every generation, because people just naturally slide, when we begin to rearticulate the Word of God, it becomes something that is like a, goes contrary to what is being said and also what has been said for a while. And I think that's something important to bring out because in every generation, including now, when you begin to articulate specifically what the Word of God says, there's always going to be this, no one's saying that. Right. And right. that's almost like an argument against. And, exactly. And, but the, these guys were saying things that nobody was saying, sure. but they were right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And so it's, 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 it's interesting. Um, also interesting, going back to the uh, thinking of the Council of Constance in which Huss ends up being burned. Mm -hmm. It was, we could say, a kind of uh, a pushback against the Pope. Yeah. So the Council itself arises out of a movement where the papacy is in disarray, and if he's supposed to be the head of the church and the interpreter of scripture and doctrine, but we cannot look to one pope that mm -hmm. we can see, say he's a pope, him we can respect, him we can assert, 
So this, this council then takes over mm-hmm. and not only condemns Hus wanting to go to Scripture, mm-hmm. but also condemns this, you know, uh, clash of popes. There were, at some point, it was yeah. like four popes. Yeah, exactly. Four popes, so they were, you know, trying to sort out who would be the pope that would emerge right. out of that. So the, the, the same movement, there was, there was a wind adrift of anti-papacy, of cons- conciliar sort of church trying to, to, to sort itself out yes. and push back against the authority of popes. Yeah. And I, I think it's one more thing to even bring out, I think it's significant, is that I think a lot of times when we talk about like the Reformation, like the Pope becomes like the main thing that we talk about. Mm-hmm. But the papacy issue was something that goes way back to the 3rd, 4th, 5th century at the inflation of the authority of bishops. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it, that's just, yeah. that was just where it went to. So but to push it back to the inflation of the authority of men back in the Garden <laughs> yeah. of Eden. Yeah. That's, yeah. Right. Yeah. that's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah. But, that's right. But, it, but, but, but I think that's yeah, very, I think it's, And that's, that is itself the establishment of what we were talking mm-hmm. about earlier of the magisterium. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who is mm-hmm. the interpreter of Scripture? Who is it that determines what <laughs> is and is not doctrine for the church? Yeah. So I think what... I think what Aldo's saying is that we could have modern day <laughs> yeah. Protestant popes. Well, yeah, yeah, that yeah. was it's what, not, what, yeah, it's not <laughs> just, just just because we don't have some singular figure who oversees sure. like an entire denomination like I feel like in the inflated view of an individual in a local church that's just the seedbeds of of what you see inflated. Well, that was know. that was one of the charges at the time of the Reformation when they talked about the authority of Scripture, and we'll talk about in our next session, we'll talk about uh, the priesthood of believers, that what would happen is instead of one voice with the principles that were put forth by Luther and the early reformers, that every individual would be their own authority. Mm. But let's just kind of summarize in, in the steps leading up to the Reformation uh, in the 16th century, the key issues that were challenged, and progressively so, uh, from as early as Peter Waldo, uh, later, as late as John Huss. And that is the authority of Scripture as being the, the primary authority for doctrine and practice, the idea that Christ is head of the church, right. and other ministers are but his servants, but they are not the head of the church in an authoritative way as Christ is, the doctrine of transubstantiation uh, or the view of the Lord's Supper, what it actually is, as well as the access to the table uh, for all believers. And then certainly one that, that, is, is, uh, that really blossoms at the time of the Reformation, and that, that is access to the Scriptures in the vernacular of the people. Uh, these seeds of discord and the importance of preaching, that, that yeah. comes later, especially in the 16th they century. Have, they didn't even have preaching. And yeah. There was no preaching. By the time of the 16th century Reformation, preaching had degenerated to such a low point that it, it's, it's hardly what we would consider as good preaching. Now, there, th- th- again, there are, are singular voices here mm-hmm. and there, but these steps taken by these men, even centuries before the action of Luther, is what leads us to that, that triumphant uh, point of, of, of uh, rebellion and resistance that led to the forming of Protestantism. 
Well, this again has been another conversation here among Saints and Sinners Unplugged. We will continue our discussion when we join you again next week.